We uh, wrapped up our series on culture last week. Uh, now we're going to start uh, uh, a new series, a um, little one that's just sort of uh, based around uh, scriptural narratives. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about uh, the life of this uh, prominent New Testament figure named uh, Paul, originally called Saul, then called Paul. Have you heard of him? He's kind of a big deal if you've read the New Testament. Uh, he's uh, credited with writing up to 14 of the 27 New Testament books. Um, probably not quite that many, but really influential guy. The book of Acts is largely about uh, the life of Paul. Uh, so we're going to take all of that source, and we're just going to look at a life, you know, a life that I think uh, was uh, really powerful, uh, yet somehow really wrong, you know, the wrong guy for the job. Uh, a guy who started out really wrong, uh, but who ended up doing uh, tremendous kingdom things. Uh, to tell this story, to tell this life, we're going to have to gather uh, broad, uh, broadly uh, in Scripture. Uh, we're going to take a look at the book of Acts. We're going to take a look at a lot of epistles as well. So we're going to take a look at the Bible. Uh, the Bible. Uh, everybody hold up your iPhone. Yeah, that's the new Bible. You know, everybody gets it online now or in your digital library. Uh, anybody have a classic Bible? Okay, brownie points in heaven for you this morning. Uh, way to go. Uh, so a few introductory words in the Bible, and then we'll just jump in. I think the Bible is an amazing collection of documents. It is by far the most influential uh, book in human history. There's no argument about that. Although, although there's a lot of argument about exactly uh, what the Bible is, I think it's important to appreciate the Bible for what it is, because if you understand it uh, really for what it is, it just becomes all that more mind-blowing. There are two basic schools of thought on the Bible uh, from people who approach it, even people who approach it reverently. And the first school of thought, you know, very generally, very simplistically, is that the Bible is a divinely written document, that it is a book that God dictated word for word to people who wrote it down very, very carefully. Um, so it's basically God's book. He, he, he was the author of it. And if, I think, you know, if that's, if that's your take on, on the Bible, that it was, you know, literally dictated uh, by God word for word, uh, kind of divine and miraculous that way, uh, then, you, you know, you occasionally encounter a few problems. You know, in the Gospels, you have uh, sometimes three or even four accounts of the same event, and maybe those accounts vary just a tiny bit in details. Was there one angel there, or were there, was there two angels there? Um, you know, how many, how many horses did King so-and-so have? in that Old Testament battle. You know, minor discrepancies, and over the years, biblical critics have made a great deal uh, about these, uh, you know, these minor inconsistencies. Sometimes they argue major inconsistencies. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's some sort of human filter involved, obviously. Uh, I like to think of the Bible as a human-written book, a Bible that was written by humans. Um, and the reason I like to think of a Bible that was written by humans, um, inspired by God, but written by us, is because when you see the Bible as a human document, it becomes absolutely and inexplicably miraculous. If you think that humans put this together, 
then you're very hard-pressed to explain how they pulled it off uh, without God. I like the humble view of the Bible, the human view of it, because then it just, then it becomes godly, if that makes sense. I know that's a little bit paradoxical. Are you following me? If not, pretend that you are. Most of what uh, you read and hear uh, these days in terms of deconstructionist criticism of the Bible, to use a, a word that we popularized in the last sermon series, you know, stuff like, oh, you know, the books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, were chosen by a bunch of patriarchal men uh, in Isaiah, and, and there was a scheme to kind of filter out all the books that they didn't want in, uh, and, you know, it was sort of a, a hatched religion, that sort of thing. All that stuff is just terribly bogus. Uh, if you know the real history of how it came together. When the Bible books were finally collected in, in final form, when they were canonized, to use the fancy term. Um, <clears throat> generally, Christians already knew what the accepted books were. That happened long before it was formalized at the Council of Nicaea by the church. Um, Christians kind of understood what was authoritative and what wasn't. There are lots of books out there that uh, pass themselves off as authoritative gospels. You know, maybe you've heard some of them. The Gospel of Thomas is probably the most famous one that were excluded from the canon. Uh, but that's because there are just weird passages in the Gospel of Thomas. And if you were to actually read it, how many of you have? See, there's the issue. Um, you just kind of recognize it as like really weird, you know. And people from the earliest days of Christianity worked hard to keep the Bible unmixed, uh, to keep it as authoritative and on track as possible. And they did an amazing job, an amazing job. And, and that's one of the things that just blows me away uh, about the document. Uh, the Bible does not represent a, an invented religion. What it invents is a story that unfolded literally over thousands of years. And yet it hangs together in this coherent narrative. The Bible was written across centuries. Uh, the authors came from many different cultures and many different time periods. I mean, literally separated by hundreds of years. And yet if you read the last book of the Bible and the first book of the Bible, they match. Their purposes match. The story through line matches. And that is inexplicable. There is no other example of something like that happening in world history or world literature. It is, it is a book without peer, that humankind could tell a story across thousands of years, that it is beautiful and coherent down to the detail as the Bible is, is just mind-blowing. If you wanted to invent a religion, if you wanted to invent a story, you would not come up with, with the Bible. You would not come up with the Judeo-Christian tradition. You would certainly not come up uh, with, with the Christian faith. If you wanted to invent a religion, I would argue that you would invent something like Islam. Islam is a, is a, is a great religion as religion goes. It kind of, you, you understand uh, why it is uh, what it is. Um, if, if you were to invent a religion, if I were to invent a religion, uh, well, the first thing I would argue is that I am an unquestionable prophet. Right? That's kind of foul. A lot, of, a lot of these cults and pop religions start, that's how Islam started. If you question me, oh, I don't know, I might kill you. 
Also, I get all the women I want. And uh, if God loves me, uh, he rewards me more that way. He makes me rich in this life, and if you do really, really well and you get to heaven, then you get rewarded in ways that make sense to you. You get more wealth. You get, you know, m more girls if you're, if you're the guy prophet. And, you know, and, and if a guy were inventing a religion, the guys would be in charge, right? I'm just going to be uh, patriarchal and structured. That's how you invent a religion. And the Bible is just all wrong that way. It's just all wrong. It's a wrong story. And it's perfect in its imperfection. I have preached sermons on the Bible before. You can look them up if it interests you. Another thing I really like about the Bible, though, is the way it gives you life stories from time to time. It gives you characters, real people. I mean, like, very real people. Not like these perfect, unquestionable, super victorious, rich, admirable prophets. No, not those kinds of people. Real, raw people who are making mistakes and sacrificing and doing the best they can with God and as a result, creating incredible beauty and incredible world change. That's what I love about the Bible. Uh, real people who somehow become extraordinary by following the Lord. So at that context, let's take a look at the life of, of this guy, Paul. Uh, was originally called Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Uh, Paul was his Greek, a Roman name, and he moved a lot in the Roman world uh, carrying the gospel of Christ, and so mostly uh, went by Paul. Who was Paul, and why should we take a look at his life? Well, he's a super important guy uh, in Christian history, uh, let alone uh, in, in the Bible. He's, he's probably the greatest missionary of all time, the greatest church planter of all time. Uh, he's the guy that took uh, Christianity uh, all over the Middle East and from the Middle East into, into the West, into Europe, um, and, and uh, pretty much, you know, took it to the world uh, more than uh, anyone else. Like I said, he wrote up to 14 books of the New Testament. Some people say he didn't write them all, but he inspired the ones that he didn't write. People gathered his teaching, his students, and put stuff together heavily featured in the book of Acts, but his story is a story of imperfect perfection. He had tremendous world-changing success, but if you read the details of his story in the Bible, it's couched in uh, heartbreaking disappointment oftentimes. There's a great deal of humanity in Paul's story. If you drop in on Paul's story in the Bible at any given time, it'd be hard to tell whether he was succeeding or failing. Some of his, uh, his greatest letters were written while he was in prison. Uh, he was eventually beheaded by uh, the Roman Emperor Nero sometime around 64, 66 AD. You know, the greatest church planner of all time, killed by the most psychotic, licentious uh, dictator of all time. Hardly seems fair, hardly seems like a victory story. He was very limited and human in some ways, but he was very supernatural in other ways, performed extraordinary miracles. It's just hard to explain his story because it's a very human story that accomplished incredibly divine things. More than anything else, I think the story of Paul's life is a story of mission through and through. The guy sold out for his purpose. And that's a theme that we love at Blue Water. He was a purpose-led individual. More than any other biography uh, we get in Scripture, I think Paul 
nicely encapsulates the concept of try. You know, faith equals try. And Paul was a guy who tried and tried and tried and tried. Sometimes failed and then tried again. Um, if you uh, read the story of Paul, you get the story of the book of Acts, which is our one big account of the beginning of the Christian church uh, in history. Uh, and so um, you get a lot of that Genesis story. You know, if you understand the life of Paul, you kind of understand why we're here, still doing this community building stuff many centuries later. I really love the fact that everything that Paul did for the kingdom of God is traveling around the world, planning churches, uh, writing theological treaties and stuff like that. He did it without a map. Everything that Paul did was being done for the first time. He lived in an age of tremendous cultural upheaval, huge social questions and problems. It was a very deconstructionist time like ours is uh, today. And he just brought order to that chaos. He lived a creative life against a backdrop of what should we do now? He brought answers to mysteries. And, and I just love that uh, about him. Here's what I want us to walk away with as we take a look at the life of Paul. I want us to walk away with an understanding of how to live a supernatural life. Now, if you're a Blue Water veteran, you know what I mean by supernatural life. I don't just mean like, you know, performing a lot of miracles with supernatural power, although that's cool. And feel free uh, to perform a miracle uh, whenever you want. But a supernatural life more basically is a not natural life is an abnormal life. And when you get really locked up with Jesus, your life becomes really abnormal. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it can become really weird. It can become just not natural. Uh, it can become a little bit freaky. And the more sold out you get, the weirder you feel oftentimes. And I am certain that Paul often felt very weird. He felt very weird to the people in the world around him. And he often felt very weird even with respect to other prominent Christian leaders of his day. He often felt unnatural, uh, like an alien. I often feel that way, so I really appreciate what Paul teaches me about living uh, a supernatural life. Paul started in life by wanting purpose. And as a result, he really found the true God. We have the saying at Blue Water. I have the saying. Maybe you've adopted it. If you seek God, you find purpose. If you seek God, you always find your life purpose. But I think the opposite is true as well. If you truly seek your life purpose, you'll end up finding God. And that's why we do that Pathway to Purpose conference that, that, um, that Mary mentioned earlier in her, in her testimony. We just have people come together and we just encourage them, wherever they're coming, whether they're people of faith or not, we encourage them to seek hard after life purpose. Because even if you don't believe in God, most humans will believe that they have a life purpose. And in seeking purpose, uh, very, very frequently, they end up finding the one true God. And, and I kind of think that that's what Paul was about. Uh, we'll see that in our, in our text this morning. Paul was from a town called Tarsus, which was sort of this bustling commercial uh, seaport kind of place, uh, mostly a Roman town. He came from a family of Pharisees, 
you know what Pharisees are if you read the Jesus stories. They were incredibly religious, very patriotic people, uh, super conservative and zealous about the law and about the Old Testament scripture. Uh, Paul's family were considered Romans. They were Roman citizens, not just Jews, so he had a lot of Roman privileges. Uh, Paul was evidently a bright kid, and he moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem, which was the center of Hebrew life, and he became a student of a very, very famous, very famous Pharisee, a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Uh, to this day, still one of the most famous rabbis of all time. He was the student of the best teacher there was. Gamaliel actually makes an appearance uh, in the, the biography of Paul uh, in the Bible. He, he makes a cameo. Um, he was a, a rising star at the school of Gamaliel. He, wouldn't, he would have gotten teaching about Scripture. He would have become an expert in, in, in the Jewish customs and Jewish religion, but he also would have gotten a Greek education. Uh, he would have become an expert in Greek philosophy, Stoic philosophy in particular. You see some of that leaking out in, in Paul's writings. Uh, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee, an up-and-coming Jewish patriot religious expert. Uh, the future looked good uh, for Saul. He was called in that day, used his Hebrew name. And uh, as part and parcel of that process, he became very zealous against Christians because this Jesus sect looked to the Pharisees like trouble. The Pharisees, if you read the Gospel accounts, did not like Jesus at all. He was very inconvenient for them. He, he excited the rabble. He, he wasn't serious enough about God's laws. He forgave people uh, just willy-nilly. And, and uh, they were worried that, that the Romans were going to come down on the Jews because Jesus was coming popular and might look like a threat to the Roman uh, occupiers. And then we get this in Acts chapter 7. Uh, the Christians, the new Christians, brand new, are starting to have a lot of evangelistic success in, in Jerusalem, and the church is growing, growing. They killed Jesus, but the Christians are still multiplying, and people are getting very nervous about it. Uh, and so the religious authorities start persecuting, and they start throwing Christian leaders in jail, and they get a hold of this guy named Stephen, who wasn't one of the original apostles, but has become one of the leaders, one of the chief caretakers in the Jerusalem church. And, and, and they charge Stephen with blasphemy, and they drag him uh, into a crowd and demand that he gives an account of himself, and Stephen gives this long, eloquent sermon. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. And then they start roughing him up really seriously. And then Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, while they were roughing him up, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen has a vision, and he says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, the religious experts covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. It would have been a mob stoning, like dozens or hundreds of guys would have picked up stones and each one thrown a rock at Stephen until he was dead. That's how the deed was done. Uh, a brutal way to go, killed for blasphemy. Meanwhile, the witnesses or the participants would be an alternate translation laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, his first appearance in history. Saul was the guy that said, oh, let me hold your coat while you kill the Christian. That's how he got his start. Weasley little fellow. And from there, Saul took the opportunity to make a name for himself. 
and he became the chief persecutor of Christians. Like, I like this. I like this. Uh, give me some authority. Give me a badge, and I'm going to go root these guys out wherever they are. And that just started this wholesale persecution of Christians, and that's the first great dispersion. The Jerusalem church, uh, a lot of them uh, ran away to other cities. The advantage was that they took the gospel to other cities and, and spread it that way. Acts 9, it's going to be in the back of your program and up here on the big board. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul has, has jumped in. He's, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he was just going uh, to synagogues and making sure there were no Christians trying to infiltrate the synagogues. And if he found any people that followed Jesus, he would drag them to prison in Jerusalem where they would be, you know, roughed up or perhaps killed. That was his job. As he neared Damascus on his journey, he's going to Damascus to see if he can find any Christians there. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And thus begins the story of the most famous conversion in history. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, struck blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. I love it that they're kind of on a first-name basis. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So evidently, God had been speaking to Saul as well. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, no, I'm not going to go help this guy. You're kidding me, right? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to practice my, uh, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, there's a great job description. Then Ananias went to the house and entering it, and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, it's a nice greeting, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, that guy, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength, and Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, uh, the story of the conversion of Saul. Uh, what I'd like to think about uh, in the story today, there are many wonderful details, 
It's a story that has inspired tens of thousands of written pages of commentary and many, many sermons, no doubt. What jumps out at me, what jumps out at me is, is what's left unsaid in the story. Um, and I, I, just, I just imagine, I just imagine Paul's moment here in the story. I mean, he's a guy who's, I mean, he's living as hard as he can. I and mean, whatever else you say about Saul in the early years, he was a go-getter, you know. He's taken the lead to stamp out what he perceives as an evil, Christianity. He's going to hunt down the followers of Jesus. He is certain about this, so certain that he's willing to kill people. And then he has this encounter with Jesus that completely shuts him down. And I think about those three days, you know, for Saul, after he's been literally blinded by God, and he's just sitting there wondering about what comes next for him. I would like to have a, I like to have a, an account of what, what went through his mind during those days of darkness. Have you ever had a time like that where just, you've just been struck down, just struck down, and you know that you screwed up? You screwed up so badly that, you know, Jesus himself had to come smack you upside the head, you know? And you're just, you're just stuck in darkness. In his case, both figuratively and literally, right? It's just blind. And all he knows is that God has told him, you'll be told what you must do, dot, dot, dot. And so what are you doing for those three days except, you know, guessing what it is that you must do? What is God going to tell you to do after striking you down the way that he has? And I imagine that Saul was not imagining good outcomes. Well, let's see. Evidently, I've been killing people that God likes. God has struck me blind and says, uh, now I'm going to tell you what's coming. Well, I mean, I imagine Saul thought that he would be persecuted and that maybe he would be handed over uh, to Christians to be disposed of. I mean, that would only be fair, right? And I think Paul was probably, probably had enough chutzpah in, in his heart to to, uh, to embrace, you know, that sort of retribution. Yeah, well, you know, I deserve it. I deserve it. Um, not what I expected, but man, what, what a few days uh, that must have been. And then eventually, uh, during that time, he has a vision that uh, a man named uh, Ananias uh, will come to him. Um, and place his hand on him and restore his sight, but that's like all he's been told. Um, have you ever felt like you failed entirely in life? Anybody? Yeah, a few people. I, I have. And there's so many different ways to react to those moments. You know, you can react fearfully. You can overcompensate. Oh, I screwed up. Well, from here on out, 
I'm going to work twice as hard and fix everything. You know, you can go there. Um, you can be humble, like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and just kind of lower your head. Um, a lot of people have an experience of failing badly in life, and then they never recover. A lot of people never recover from a fundamental failure. They just don't have what it takes to overcome. Sometimes they can't admit that they failed because they just can't face up to it. Uh, sometimes they can't deal with it, so they just enter some sort of escapist fantasy life. But here's what Saul did. Saul honored the moment. Saul sat in it. I mean, the dude just, he, he was there. He had a lot of thereness uh, in this story, right? I mean, he, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he couldn't see. I mean, that's about as there as you can get. The dude sat in his moment. I screwed up. I'm not going to rush this <laughs> as if he could. I'm not going to rush this. I'm going to take my own life. I'm not going to start making proclamation. I'm going to sit. Saul did repentance in a big way. That word repentance means change your mind. And I bet Paul turned over his mind again and again and again. That's where things started for him. And he thought about that phrase. You will be told what you must do. You will be told what you must do. And I think what he did is got his soul ready. I'll do whatever. Whatever. I'm in a whatever place. And that's a rare place to be. I just really appreciate that about the story. I don't know if I'm communicating it well enough, but maybe you want to imagine that moment, that sort of darkness for yourself. Um, he knew that his life was over. He didn't know if he had another one coming. <laughs> if he had a, a new chapter or not. Just the darkness of the man. I had a time in life, um, <clears throat> right before Sony and I moved back to the island, where I'd sort of failed at my academic career. It didn't work out. Uh, I worked for a software company at the time and ended up kind of trying to drag that company out of, out of trouble and, and, and sort of succeeded at that. Oh, I hated the job. And then 9-11 happened, and among other disasters in New York, a number of my company's clients were wiped out in the attack, and, and it looked like uh, the company that I had worked so hard uh, to fix was facing bankruptcy. And, and in that moment, the president of the company had literally like, left the country, taking all the money uh, the company had uh, with him and leaving me with no money to pay payroll and stuff like that. And, uh, and then... Uh, I, uh, I was working hard to get another client in, in Manhattan at the time, and I got the phone call that, that they had uh, chosen to go with a, a celebrity company. It, it was a long story, but anyway, it looked like everything was over for us, and it was midnight or so, two in the morning or so, in the company office where I was working all night. I remember sitting on the step there in that office and just thinking, man, my life sucks. You know, like everything I thought God had called me to do, I failed at, and then I try to do this thing, and through circumstances beyond my control, it seems like the world is blowing up, literally and figuratively. Um, and, and I just, I didn't think my life would be this. It was a moment that felt very dark for me. And, and the Lord spoke in that moment to me. Um, I, I, 
I had my face in my hands, you know. I was so despondent I couldn't cry. I don't know if you've ever been there. And, and he said, you've passed the test. Now you work for me. Now you work for me. I'll never forget him saying that. Um, I've never held down a regular job since then. Um, but I had no idea what he meant at the time. No idea. Now you work for me uh, for the rest of your life. And I just had to sit there uh, for days and, and weeks. A little while after that, uh, the company didn't go a good way. And a long story there. But um, I was unemployed on uh, the North Shore of Boston. And I went on a 10-day fast, I remember. I remember thinking about Paul at that time. It's like, well, when you're in the moment, you just sit in it. It's what you do. So I went on a 10-day food fast, which is hard for me. Um, I don't have a lot to give. A skinny guy, I was skinny back then. I remember in that 10-day fast, I lost 22 pounds. Uh, I started out about this weight, and, and I looked really skeletal. And at the end of it, uh, I remember taking off my shirt in the bedroom uh, one day, and Sonia literally screamed. You did. You screamed. It's like, ah! What has happened to you? Where did you go? You have to eat. You might die. You literally said that, and then you forced me to sit down and eat some tofu and broccoli. That's, that's how the fast ended. I was there. Uh, a little while after that, um, I got uh, the prophetic word that, that led me to Hawaii. You can't really communicate experiences like that because most of what was happening for me was sort of emotional, you know. But sometimes you just got to sit there. Sometimes you got to sit there. In fact, sometimes you got to dig the hole deeper uh, just to make sure you got space to sit comfortably. <laughs> Uh, and, I don't know, do you relate? Can anybody relate to that? You do it. Um, you do the repentance. Uh, you do the change as best you can. You wait on God. You wait on God. Because if you don't do the repentance well, if you don't feel the failure deep enough, then you can't change enough when the time comes. When you feel like the business is taken care of, then the thing to do is to seek after God to seek after God. And, and that's, what, that's what Saul did. Eventually Ananias comes, heals him of his blindness, and fills him with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit retreat, people? Yeah, you're filled with the Spirit. A conversion moment in life. When it comes time to make a change, you ask yourself, well, how deep should I go? How deep should I go? Don't cheat the moment. A lot of times it's not what we're repenting from. It's not how we failed. It's the blindness that we're repenting from. It's like, wow, I was not seeing things clearly. And obviously, that was, that was a point that, that Saul was thinking about. There's a sort of blindness that happens in our lives. It's not that we can't see anything. It's that our eyes are filled with the wrong things, right? And Saul thought that he was, he was honoring God with his life. His life was filled with his religious conviction, he was blind because his eyes were filled with the wrong things. Can anybody relate to that? And then something happens and, 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 and you think, I was misfocused. I was misfocused. I was majoring on the minors. 
I was offline and I just didn't know it. Jesus has this teaching that when what you take at light is darkness, how great is your blindness? You know, we, uh, the worst sort of blindness is not like knowing you're blind. It's when you're blind but you think you can see. And uh, maybe you've had moments like that and God has caught you up short. Uh, maybe you're having a moment like that in life uh, these days and you're getting the feeling like, you know, the problem might be that I'm focused on the wrong stuff. You know, I mean, I feel like I've been pursuing God, but maybe God is telling me that I've filled my eyes with, with the wrong goals, that I just have a misunderstanding. Uh, zeal without knowledge is a dangerous thing. It's a slight paraphrase of an Old Testament Bible proverb. You know, a lot of passion with a little bit of wisdom often just creates a lot of chaos. Sometimes we have to uh, grow up. And into that, uh, the Lord will speak and he'll say, you'll be told what you must do. You'll be told what you must do, but first there's got to be a lot of letting go. A lot of letting go. Of course, once God told Saul what he must do, his life became certain, less certain. Yeah, and that's the thing about following God. When God tells you uh, what you should do, he gives you purpose. He does not give you certainty. There's a huge difference between purpose and certainty. Uh, a lot of times when I pray for people, uh, they say, I ask, well, what do you want prayer for? And they say, uh, I just want God to give me direction. I just want direction for my life. And I usually ask, why? And then they say something predictable like, well, you know, I want to be sure that I'm doing the right thing. And I say something smart alecky like, good luck. Uh, the Lord will tell you what you want to accomplish. He will give you purpose. He probably won't give you a road map. You probably won't get an instruction manual. You'll have to invent. You'll have to create. You'll have to make a lot of mistakes along the way. Why? Because it's a journey of faith, not security. It's a journey of discovery and adventure, not religious perfection. Because the most perfect stories are the imperfect ones, right? The best adventures are the ones where the person is wrong for the job, right? It's beautiful that way. And, and you, can, you, can, you can rest assured uh, that when the Lord speaks his purpose specifically in your life, when you get clarity on what the Lord is calling you to do, the uncertainties in your life will multiply. They will multiply. So you better take a moment and be certain about your purpose. You're going to need it down the line. And I think that's another reason uh, that that Paul uh, took what happened uh, so deeply, as deeply uh, as he could. Faith will always be required. Uh, so here's our prayer point for the day, and we will end with this as we begin our adventure with the life of Paul. Uh, you know, I, 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 just feel like, I just feel like praying, Lord, open, open my eyes, and I feel like praying that over the congregation. You know, open our eyes. Uh, a lot of us are, are, are hard after God, but, you know, I want, I want to be sure that our eyes are filled with the right things, that we're not blinded um, by 
stuff that we think is good, but which fails to be great. I think we're entering a season of blue water where the Lord is going to accelerate our experience with Him and the kingdom. And if we're not willing to let go of stuff, then we'll just get torn to pieces. And I think, I think Saul understood that at the very beginning. I think, I think he thought to himself, I have entered a very dangerous season. <laughs> I have gone from being the predator to being very vulnerable. I've gone from being quite certain to being very vulnerable. If I hold on to something I shouldn't, um, I'm going to sink. I'm going to sink. Uh, the nature of, of renewal or revival in Christian history is that it begins with a great sweep of conviction and repentance of God pointing out Hey, you know, nice try, but no, <laughs> no, that's got to go, that's got to go. And once you unburden yourself uh, from the wrong things, then you can float on the fast current of revival. Then you can move quickly. We want to be people that can move quickly with God, that can make radical change. So it's time to travel light. It's time to travel light. And that's what we want to pray for. Does that make sense? Does that sound good to you?